HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of A Taste of the Past is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for Italian ingredients and pantry staples. Learn more at gustiamo.com. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And today, we are talking about Arabic food. My guest today, Reem Cassis, has researched the background and history of Arabic food for many years and for her first book, The Palestinian Table, about classic Arab dishes. And that research um, and further uh, readings into the book showed her how the cuisine really has evolved over the course of history with so many influences of the ever-changing region. Her new book, The Arabesque Table presents a more modern take on many of the dishes that are still rooted in the historic origins of the food of the Arab world and represent a national cuisine. Reem is a Palestinian writer whose work focuses on the intersection of food with culture, history, and politics. She's the author of the best-selling, as I said, a best-selling and award-winning cookbook, the Palestinian Table, and now the Arabesque Table. Her other writings have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, the LA Times, and various academic journals. Reem grew up in Jerusalem and then obtained her undergraduate degree and MBA degrees from UPenn and Wharton and her MSc in social psychology from the London School of Economics. She now lives in Philadelphia with her husband and two daughters, and she joins me today via computer uh, from Philadelphia. Welcome, Reem. Thank you, Linda. It's great to be here. Yeah, I was obviously reading your your bio right there from received, <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I could have ad libbed it, but I didn't want to leave anything out. Oh, and yeah. but it also really sort of sets the stage. I don't really know what to say. Let me see. My guest Reem Cussies is an author. Well, yes, but she's also. <laughs> you know, um, a business person and a, you know, a, I still struggle with how to define myself. So yes. Same right. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, yes. A, a very good researcher and writer. Let's put it that way. I like that. <laughs> Your first book, the Palestinian table, it was a beautiful, is a beautiful book and it garnered so much praise and maybe a little opposition at times, I suppose, <laughs> in this turmoil of our world. Right. Um, and it was your first entree into food writing, right? True. 
Yes, I yeah. have it, never done anything with writing or food before. Right. And the, the book received a James Beard Foundation nomina- nomination that year. It came out when, in, I think, in 17, 2017? Correct, yes, end of 2017. In that book, um, you wrote about your heritage and that you grew up, grew up in a melting pot of food, religion, and culture. And that mm-hmm. obviously has influenced your approach to both of these books. Can you tell us a little bit about that and about your background? So like you mentioned, Linda, I was born in Jerusalem to a Palestinian family, but my parents are from different parts of the country. Uh, My father is a Christian from the northern part, the Galilee, close to the Mm -hmm. Lebanese border. And my mother is from a predominantly Muslim village in the center of the country, closer to the West Bank and um, Yaffa. And I was born and raised in Jerusalem, which, as you know, is a city that has all faiths in it, Muslims, Jews, and Christians. It has Arabs and it has Israelis. It also has a lot of foreigners and diplomats. And I went to an American school there. So as you can imagine, it was a hodgepodge of experiences and foods and, you know, anything you can imagine, it was there. And for me, a lot of those experiences didn't actually take a shape or any significance until I was far removed from them. So all the things I talk about in the Palestinian table about having grown up with this melting pot of food and having experienced so many different types of dishes and cuisines at my paternal and maternal grandmother's tables and my mother's table, those really only came into clear view when I started to see them in relation to how the world outside worked and what people outside ate. And that's Mm -hmm. when you start to realize just how special and unique those experiences are and why they're actually worth writing a book about. Right, right, indeed. Um, And this, what I was interested in, in the fact that, not in your world, probably not so quick, but in quick succession now, you've published another book on Arab cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, and quick being what, like four years? Four years. Know, how many years? Like, yeah, probably years. slow by some measures these days. Right. But, yeah. but, you know, to, to, be write, to be writing on the same topic in the, in the mm-hmm. Arab cuisine, right. the arabesque table, why? So tell us why you chose arabesque and, mm-hmm. and really how is this book different from the Palestinian table. So to understand why Arabesque came about, I guess it's important to know also why the Palestinian table was born. And in that book, it's very much a personal narrative of my family through which you understand the history of Palestinian cuisine. And the reason that book came into being was it started initially as a small project that I wanted to do for my daughter when she was first born. But later on, you know, through the process of seeing what I had accumulated, I saw that, you know, yes, these are my family's recipes and stories, but they could also be the recipes and stories of any Palestinian family. And given where we are in the world, you know, the Palestinians are refugees all over the place. And even within our own country, we are displaced. And there's so much of our culture and our heritage that is being threatened. I wanted to find a way to preserve it. And that was what the Palestinian table was about. Now, very soon after it came out, I was doing a lot of these interviews and I was being asked questions, which 
as someone new to the world of food and writing, I probably had not given much thought to, you know, things like, so how exactly is Palestinian cuisine different from Lebanese and Syrian or Jordanian? Mm-hmm. And questions about culinary appropriation, you know, what's the issue with Israel eating Palestinian foods and calling them Israeli and so on and so forth. And those questions kept nagging at me and I started researching the history of food. And once you you know, start digging through that hole, you realize it runs very, very deep and it goes back to the Middle Ages. And when you see the evolution of how cuisine, you know, how the evolution of cuisine has taken place, you start to see the very idea of a national cuisine is actually a relatively recent construct. I mean, it wasn't until the late 18th, early 19th century that we even see the formation of a nation state. Mm -hmm. For me, what was interesting was seeing just how important Arab cuisine has been in the cuisine of the entire world. You know, Western cuisine, the Turkish, Ottoman cuisine, all the cuisine of the Eastern Mediterranean and the West and even to the Far East. If you start to look at it, you see a very heavy Arabic influence. And some of the oldest cookbooks on record that we have are from the Middle Ages, written by Arabs. You know, it was a time when nobody else was writing cookbooks. Right. And so I wanted to capture that in this book. Now, originally, the idea for the arabesque table was, hey, this is how we're eating today. It's very different from the way my family might have eaten before or their families before them. But to capture that with integrity, I knew it would be impossible to do that if I didn't also go back in time and explain the history and why we're here. Because otherwise, you're looking at basically a bunch of leaves without looking at the branches and the roots that have sustained Mm -hmm. them to get them to where they are. So if you want to, in a very simplified way, I'd say the Palestinian table is a very deep, narrow exploration into Palestinian cuisine. And the Arabesque table is a much wider lens into the history and the landscape of Arab cuisine, of which Palestinian is only a small part. Right. I mean, it's you could have written in in, just in writing about Arab cuisine, you could have written a a history tome. I mean, it was... <laughs> oh, God, yeah, this book doesn't do justice. I mean, there are people who say, wait, well, there's a... You said 22 Arab countries. Where are all their dishes? And I explained in the introduction, to write that, it would need to be a book of thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. Right, and, right. You know, I... Again, it's explained that I tried as much as I can to input as many of the snippets of history that I found interesting and telling of this story but still in a way that can be marketed to a very large public and at least raise awareness about this history. Right, and you did that very nicely, I must say. Thank you. I mean, I'm thinking you um, you mentioned that the early some of the earliest cookbooks were um, Arab cookbooks, and mm-hmm. I was thinking of the. Um, um, don't if I don't have it written in front of me, I won't get it right. The waf the. Oh, the one that Nawal was, Nasrallah. Yes, Annals of the Caliph's Kitchens. Um, yes, Kitab al Tabikh. Yes. Okay, you're right. Okay, you say it so nicely. I, I <laughs> couldn't even begin. Um, it's a treasure. I mean, it's and, and sort of a, a literal translation. It's a treasure trove of, of mm-hmm. tastes and recipes. And that, I mean, her book alone is um, huge. And, mm-hmm. and it's only just, you know, just sort of a condensation of a lot of the basic you know, recipes that were in there. Um, I can't imagine the the work of kind of untangling some of these roots um, of the dishes to, to, to really, as you say, you said that it was different, very difficult to um, 
delineate or differ- differentiate one mm-hmm. origin of a food from another. Um, you told a very interesting story about the title, where the title came from, and I thought that was mm-hmm. um, so telling of this book. Can you can you share that with the, the listeners? Yes, of course. So the word arabesque in general, it refers to a certain pattern in Islamic and Arabic art of infinitely intertwined patterns that flow and connect. And it's almost hard to tell where one begins and one ends, but you still are able to see the beauty of each individual line. And in thinking about what to call this book, the name The Arab Table was thrown out uh, or, you know, it came up and... I didn't want to call it the Arab table because my whole point in writing this book was I want something honest. I don't want a random book with a bunch of modernized dishes pretending to be a Middle Eastern cookbook. You know, what I wanted to do was say, okay, this is a fusion dish. This is not a Palestinian dish. This is Mm -hmm. not a Lebanese. And arabesque seemed to cater to that so much better because the way I saw it was the pattern itself was the cuisine of the world throughout history. And the individual lines, they are the national cuisines within that bigger picture. And to call it arabesque also implies that it's Arab, but it's not 100% Arab. And we're not claiming ownership of one thing. You know, I have a cardamom coffee and pistachio tiramisu in there. There's tiramisu. I love that recipe. (laughs) (laughs) It's a very good recipe, but tiramisu is one of those dishes you actually know it was invented in Italy, even if Italians can't agree which part. At least everyone else can agree it was indeed made in that um, region. So, you know, it, it was an effort at being very honest in describing what's inside it. Mm-hmm. And then another reason for it, which I don't discuss at all in the book, but I've mentioned a bit in interviews, is arabesque is a dance move in ballet. And for any dancers out there, you would know it's you have one foot firmly planted on the ground, stabilizing you. And then you have another leg stretched out into the back and your arm reaching forward. And to me, that image really symbolizes what this book is. It's rooted in history. It has that foot firmly planted, you know, on the ground, but it's stretching one part of it far back to see what got us to this point. And it has one hand stretched to the future, showing how things can evolve. So just from an imagery perspective, it helped me, I guess, solidify what it was that I was trying to do. Right. That's a beautiful, beautiful image. And I like it so much. You mean it could have ended up being you know, the what's a very trendy title for a lot of books now is, you know, ish, adding the ish to the end of it could have been yeah. Arab-ish. And that, no, no that just no. doesn't make it. <laughs> you know, Arabesque is it. it felt, I felt it would cheapen it. I mean, that was also, you know, thrown out there in terms of names to consider. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it, it just started coming about these past Oh, I guess five years or so, and everything became. Everything is ish now. Do you want to yes. talk around five-ish o'clock? And it's, well, what is it? Five? five oh, well, five. that well, that's been around a long time, right? But as far as you know, cookbooks and things, and right. and ethnicity. Well, because just because of the you know the the Arab your discussion with the um, the roots of the Arab dishes that it's so intertwined that somebody well, what are you? Are you Indian? Well. Kind of Indian-ish, you know. I have a little mm. bit of this and a little bit of that. Or if someone were to, you know, of course they always ask me if I'm Italian because of the last name. The last name. Yeah, but it's I'm not at all. It's my husband who's mm. <laughs> So you know, I, I said, well, maybe a little Italian-ish because I lived there a long time. My palate maybe is Italian. But, right. And speaking of Italian, a lot of a lot of what you discuss is will you say there's you know a national cuisine didn't even come about until long after the beginning of the 18th century, 
um, mm-hmm. in that nation because they're, well, just look at all of the different empires, you know, right. the Persian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, every, all these different empires. Well, and with Italy too, I mean, Italy didn't even become a nation until late in the 19th century. So No, and you know, cuisine is very region. I mean, the national cuisine, oftentimes the first national cuisine is thought to be French, having arisen after the French Revolution, right? So you nationalize the cuisine of Versailles and then the masses have access to what the wealthy were eating and food right. becomes a way to galvanize that sense of nationalism. It's no longer a way to differentiate between rich or poor. But in right. Italy, it's interesting you bring it up because even to this day, to us outside of Italy, we look at Italian cuisine as one national cuisine. But if you go into Italy, I'm sure you've seen it, debates over the regionality of cuisine probably rage just as much as they do between nations. You know, if oh, yeah. Neapolitan versus Roman pizza, you know, a Milanese dish versus a Sicilian one, they could be worlds apart That's when right. you look at what they're making. And it, this is not a case unique to Italy. Anywhere you go, even within a place as small as Palestine, cuisine is regional. You know, we mm-hmm. started out by discussing how I grew up with a mishmash of cultures and cuisines within this country. And indeed, you know, my the dishes I ate in the north at my paternal grandparents' house, which borders Lebanon, were very different to the dishes I ate at my maternal grandmother's house, which borders, you know, the West Bank and Jordan. Very different. And it speaks to the regionality of food. Because, you know, you have things like geography and landscape and the local flora and fauna and all those things that impact what you have access to and, you know, the climate and what dishes you need to help you live and endure those uh, environmental factors. They definitely impact the dishes that you're cooking. Yeah. And the and you discuss ingredients. I mean, I as an outsider, I'm you know, I'm always trying to bring myself up to speed when, you know, we're talking about different cuisines of that, the Middle Eastern region and, mm-hmm. the, and the Arab region, mm-hmm. um, because it's, it is confusing. A lot of ingredients come from, you know, from so many different countries that are not part of that, you know, immediate area. And yet they're, you know, use well, even mm-hmm. new world ingredients, especially too, you know, so it's, it really is very confusing. And you actually had to try to focus yourself. Right. Um, you wrote that, but that that you really were focused on dishes from the Levant, mm-hmm. um, and even though a lot of the ingredients came from all, you know, all over the place, right? right. Um, and that, and so then I thought, okay, wait, wait, I now, okay, I always get confused here. Where you know the what, what is she talking about? The Levant, okay, <laughs> but you did you know mention that. Mm. Uh, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan? Right, yeah. Levant just, it's, you know, French word for rising, and it refers to, this is the name the French gave us, you know, where the sun rises, basically, versus where it sets in northern Africa. The Maghreb Mm -hmm. means where it sets, and the Mashrik, the Levant, is where it rises, and, you know, east versus west is pretty Mm -hmm. much all it is. And, and, um, but even still, I'm sure that, you know, some people are going to... You know, claim that a particular dish would is not really Arab per se. Then you know, maybe somebody found that in, you know, as you say in, let's say Morocco or you know, well, here's the thing. Africa. I mean, it's very easy to define what Arab is, which is why I was very particular in the book introduction to explain why the book does not call itself Middle Eastern recipes or a Middle Eastern cookbook. It's an Arabic cookbook because. 
the term the Middle East is very much, you know, it's a Western Eurocentric term that was given to our part of the world by the British Empire Mm -hmm. in relation to their easternmost colony in India. So, you know, you have India in the East, you have England in the West, and you have us in the middle, and we become the Middle East. But when you refer to Morocco as the Middle East, that's actually geographically not technically accurate. It's Northern Africa. And then sometimes people will include Cyprus or Greece or Iran in the Middle East. But again, you know, it's either ethnically or geographically inaccurate. Arab is very easy. There are 22 Arab countries in the world. And what unites them is a common language. Uh, And their culture obviously tends to be very similar because of the acculturation under Islamic rule throughout history. Now, you mentioned that I say in the book, the bulk of the recipes come from the Levant, and that is by virtue of the personal nature of the book. You know, I did do a lot of research, but at the same time, when you're only able to put in 130 recipes, there's a limit to how many you can include without coming across as too shallow or Mm -hmm. too, you know, all over the place. So the book is split by ingredient because those are what, and we can get into this in a bit later if you want, Linda, but that was the way to tell the story best, to explain the change in the trajectory of food. But Arab cuisine was the way to define what is it that all these dishes have in common. It's not a geographic location. It's an ethnicity and a culture that unites them. Right. And, and uh, which is, you know, understandable and the perfect, and that's the way that it is and the way it should be. And you've done a beautiful job as far as the ingredients and separating the recipes that way. Um, what um, and what that you kind of started to answer that question because well, my next question, which was, you know, Middle Eastern cuisine versus Arab cuisine. I mm. mean, there and there are going to be these, you know, these crossovers and intermingling. I'm sure, but. Um, when you say you've separated it by ingredients, and yet so many of these ingredients are are shared, right? By by you know the different, but so is it the way that they're used in a recipe or the technique? And we can get to that in independent in individual recipes that you have included, which do show mm-hmm. um, their their difference. Their so, I mean, I can give you a very specific example, right? There's yes. a chapter in there called eggplants and tomatoes Mm -hmm. tomatoes did not make their way to our part of the world until the 19th century eggplants were there from before but they didn't actually become widely used until later in the middle ages around the 10th century or so and there's a very interesting backstory to that we can discuss it if you want but part of the reason you know the chapters are split up this way is if you look at a chapter called eggplants and tomatoes and you know these ingredients are for the most part 200 years old, mm-hmm. then you know that our cuisine prior to that looked very different. Right. So stews are the staple meal in the Arab world, right? Any country you go to, they will have some version of a vegetable stewed and tomato sauce served alongside rice. But tomatoes were not used before. So what does that mean about our staple dishes? Well, you know, they were soured with vinegar and thickened with um, almonds and colored with saffron versus now you just use a tomato to do all of that. But in terms of how they're used differently uh, across or between countries, one of the recipes, I do believe it's in that tomatoes chapter, I could be wrong, um, is the okra and no, yes. that was in the lemon no. chapter. It's okra and lemon coriander sauce. Yes, yes, yes. And this goes back to the stews in, you know, in Palestine and Jordan. 
you tend to cook the stew with tomato sauce. And then, you know, you might saute some onion and garlic at the beginning. In Lebanon, you often finish it off by frying coriander and garlic at the end. And again, this is like a broad generalization. You might find families here who do it this way and families there who do it the other way. But by and large, we're cooking the same dish. We're just preparing it slightly differently. Mm-hmm. And so you realize we have a lot of the same roots, a lot of the same traditions, but then these little touches, if you will, vary from place to place, the same way they might vary from neighbor to neighbor or, you know, city to city. Yeah, well, and as you said, it depends, and so much so, it depends who someone grew up next to and learned to cook from, mm-hmm. um, and yet they they adopt it as their own because it was in the country where they were born and grew up. I mean, it's, right. it's all it's all very complicated. <laughs> but the dishes are very well laid out, I think, um, even though you could, you say you could only include, are there, is it 130 that are in here? Yeah, around 130. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, we started out with like 250, so. I'm sure, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you, you just stop and think, how do you, you know, uh, limit it? I mean, you have to have one that's representative of, you know, the grouping that you put them into, which I think was... was and there's really a lot of overlap as well, right? So like sure. the lemon yeah. chapter could fit into the za'atar chapter and it could fit into the tomato. Ch- you know, that's why even when I'm telling you about a certain dish, I can't remember exactly which chapter we put it into. And there it became a much more technical consideration, you know, how many number of recipes and how many mains and desserts mm-hmm. and whatnot. Right. Yeah. Um, well, why don't we take a, a quick break? And when we come back, let's talk about some of the recipes that are in here and how they how they vary from some of the classics that you um, identified in your first book. Sounds good. This episode is brought to you by Gustiamo, the online store for ingredients and pantry staples from Italy. Gustiamo's mission is to improve the quality of Italian food in the States. They independently import the best and most authentic food from Italian farmers and food makers, wonderful people dedicated to their land, and their traditions. When you're searching for quality Italian pasta, San Marzano tomatoes, and real extra virgin olive oil, Gustiamo has them all. Shop their vinegars, coffees, sweets, and so much more. From northern hilltop hazelnut farmers in Piemonte to southern sea salt millers off the coast of Sicily, Gustiamo works exclusively with small family food companies in Italy. When you shop with Gustiamo, you'll know that your ingredients are authentically Italian and of the highest quality. For our listeners, Gustiamo is offering a 10% discount on your online order with Gusti code HRN. Learn more at Gustiamo.com. That's G-U-S-T-I-A-M-O dot com. Hi, we're back and I'm talking with Reem Cassis whose new book is The Arabesque Table. Beautiful book and the pictures. You were um, describing the uh, the two that had just really caught my eye, actually, initially when I looked through the book, were indeed the date cardamom and coffee tiramisu. Mm. I mean, it's all of a sudden you look at this dish and it says tiramisu and all I see is green, you know. You're like, what's going on? Yeah, it was, that's that's beautiful. And also the, um, the okra and... Um, with cilantro and, and lemon. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah, that's that's a beautiful dish as well. And simple. So, you know, it's really... It's so easy. It's really quite easy. Uh, 
And the, well, let's go through, you said you separated it according to um, ingredients. So um, in, in the, in doing so, that leaves you, I mean, that's what, how many different um, chapters? I think. Let me think it's one, two, three, nine, four, maybe. five, six, seven, eight. Yeah, about nine or ten. Um, I mean, you know, nuts and seeds come in there, but. Uh, um, and basics. And yeah. Maybe eight. Um, how, how different are some of the dishes? I mean, I'm looking at some of the dishes that, like, they have the classic names, but yet they're the turn on you know on the particular preparation maybe is a little you know mm. maybe a little lighter a little different um mm-hmm. i'm looking what i just opened up is makmura oh yes um so how would that how does some how do in general the recipes differ from a lot of the classics of the same names so there's a different ways for different recipes. Some recipes that are taken straight out of like a 10th century medieval cookbook mm-hmm. might call for ingredients that you would be very hard pressed to find today. So one of the dishes called nerjesiyya, I believe it's in the egg and dairy chapter, it calls for you to fry the meat in tail fat, which right. I mean, who's going to find tail fat today? And then, right. you know, for herbs, you're using rue, which you can find, but really, I mean, how many people, you can't find it at the supermarket if you haven't planted it in your no, own No, in my backyard, I have two huge rue Oh, <laughs> rue really? Bushes, yeah. Okay, so yeah. you can actually make it the original. I can way, actually but. <laughs> do it, right. But sheep's tail fat, you know, they have to go to a butcher and get the tail fat. And, and not just that, those, those specific, you know, the tail fat they're referring to is... Uh, specific to a very to a lamb or a sheep that is mm-hmm. native to our part of the world which you won't even find here except on like some very specialized farm in North Carolina. That's true. Yeah. So it's in one way it's uh, changing up ingredients to allow easier access without compromising on flavor as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Another one is in technique, right? So back then they didn't have the same kinds of ovens and stoves and, uh, in, you know, all the utensils that we have today. So there's a lot of ways to just streamline recipes and make them easier and also make them quicker so that you don't have to, you know, spend hours and hours in the kitchen. Like one example of this is a stuffed cabbage pie. So yes. traditionally what you would do is you would roll every single leaf around rice and then layer it in a pot and cook it. And what I do is I just do it all with one, a few, several giant leaves mm-hmm. and I bake it in a cake pan. It looks delicious. I find it, ta- it looks beautiful and I find it tastes more delicious than the original version because it's baked instead of boiled stovetop. Yeah. So, you, you know, you concentrate the flavors. Uh, well, so, that- yeah, so th- those are two ways, you know, ingredients and then also just technique to make it easier. In other ways, it's also sometimes inspiration. You know, you, there is, could be a recipe that traditionally is made one way, but I've seen a different culture use it differently. Like there's an eggplant salad in there. We are so used to roasting eggplant whole and mashing it and using it to make all kinds of different mutabbas or dips. Right. But then I ate a dish at a friend's house who she's Thai and she had, you know, done the same thing with the eggplant, but she'd kept it whole and served it with, you know, shrimp and egg and all these different kinds of proteins and nuts. And I thought, well, why don't we do that? Obviously, the flavoring would be different and the proteins and garnishes would be different. But the concept was very inspiring, I thought. Yeah. And so you have some of that in there as well. Well, well, you mentioned you in um, before we went to break, you mentioned the... um, 
the story about eggplant, and eggplant just lends itself so beautifully to so many different preparations mm -hmm. from so many different cultures. Right. Um, I would say maybe it's one of the most widely used through history, one of the more widely used vegetables. Um, Possibly. Kind of joins the, the joins the West and the East, you know. It's, uh, it does. It originated in Southeast Asia, in mm -hmm. South and East Asia, and then it started to make its journey westward. But it wasn't appreciated when it arrived. It was actually shunned. It it's a bitter uh, vegetable, well, technically a fruit, but let's call it a vegetable. In Asia, that bitterness is valued. You bring it to the Arab world before the Middle Ages, and first of all, it looks like a local variety of nightshade, which is poisonous, so that right, off the right. bat gets people scared of it. They say it causes madness and depression and blood inflammation and so on and so forth. You even have people on record in the ninth century saying it has the color of a scorpion's abdomen and it tastes like its sting. So, you know, the color scared people, the, the mushy flesh scared them, the bitterness scared them. Right. And what changed was in the ninth century, there was a wedding in Baghdad. There was a woman nicknamed Buran who was marrying the, the caliph's son at the time. And it's said to have been the most marvelous feast Baghdad ever witnessed. And there at the wedding, they served a dish made of eggplants, which today we know is very simple. It was nothing more than eggplants that had been salted and rinsed and then fried and topped with something called murri, which is a condiment similar to soy sauce or fish sauce that was made in the Arab world at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think the eggplant's fate started to change then because people started to realize, oh, it can, you know, when you salt it, it is no longer bitter. And that's why to this day, actually, many dishes are with eggplant in them are referred to as buraniyat in reference to Buran herself, who supposedly made that dish at mm. her wedding. Mm. Uh, but it wasn't, you know, a clear cut path to acceptance as it moved westward from the east to the west. No, it's, it's had a rough road. Yeah. But there's poems that have been written about how it's like a beautiful, elegant lady in a black dress with a emerald sept, which is a very different uh, visualization to the scorpion's abdomen and sting. But it's and, fascinating to see how stuff changes over time. Anyone who's grown them, um, similar to okra, has a beautiful flower when you yes. grow them. And that's mm -hmm. so that, you know, you should, you should think, you know, think lovely thoughts of things to come and that, you know, <laughs> when you see the flower. Um, the use of um, uh, bittering agents, mm -hmm. or souring agents, I'm sorry, souring agents yes. in the recipes, um, uh, pomegranate, for instance. I mean, those are um, still widely used, sumac, yes. um, mm -hmm. and, that, and they have gained such traction in modern cuisine and our, our cooking, not mm -hmm. cuisine, but modern cooking. Uh, across the world, I think, you know, this, this wonderful exchange of, that we have these days of, of recipes. Um, how large do these souring agents play in a lot of the main dishes and the stews? So it varies from place to place. For starters, souring agents were used differently in different areas. For example, you know, I believe it's Aleppo where they didn't have lemon trees, so they relied on sumac to make things mm -hmm. sour. Uh, and then, you know, you go to a country that has a lot of orchards and a lot of citrus trees, and there they will not use sumac. Instead, they will rely on lemon. But citrus and sour notes tend to feature heavily in Arab cooking. Uh, sumac is used a lot in za'atar, 
which is a condiment made of the za'atar plant itself mixed with sumac and sesame seeds and salt. Um, lemon tends to be used mostly not in cooking, but in fresh dishes like salads. Because mm-hmm. when you cook it, it takes on a bit of a bitter aroma, but it is often used with things like grape leaves. But you also use things, for example, there is grapes. Before they mature, they're called husram, which is just unripe green grapes. And they sell them even in Arab supermarkets here. And they're used to also add sour notes to food. So sour is an appreciated flavor. Mm-hmm. Um, this is, you know, vinegar was used before. Tomatoes are used nowadays because they tend to have a bit of sourness to them. But they're, yeah, very widely used. In very different applications. I mean, except yeah. for desserts. Well, I mean, well, you use them in sugar syrup, but other right. than that. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, that, yeah, I thought that that was something that I, um, you know, I look around and I say, well, what makes this dish different? What, you know, what mm. in particular a stew, you know, what, what makes this a little different? Like, oh, there's a braised, um, oh, you spoke about grape leaves. A braised short ribs with grape leaves. I think, why isn't this recipe all over the place right now? Because, you know, braising and short ribs, I, I don't know, they suddenly have a new a renaissance. You know, everyone's making right. short ribs and, and the braise, the perfect braise and talking about it and writing about it. Mm. Ah, but what's missing is, you know, the they don't do it with pomegranate syrup or pomegranate uh No, and I think it's the acidity breaks through the richness, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of Mm -hmm. our dishes rely heavily on olive oil or they feature mostly sheep's meat. So it tends to be fatty just by nature. Mm -hmm. And lemon cuts through that. So I remember growing up, whatever we were eating, there were always wedges of lemon on the table. Even if it wasn't a dish, like I was telling you, that had lemon as part of it. He would squeeze it on top. You know, if my mother had fried uh, something similar to cardoons or artichokes, it's called gundelia, we would have lemon wedges on the table to squeeze on top of it. An okra stew, mluchiyya, you always had lemon. You always cut through the richness and the saltiness with acid. And it Mm -hmm. works. I mean, people now can explain it scientifically to you, right? Why these contrasts work and why they confuse your brain and make you want to come back for more. But I think we've had some kind of inherent affinity to it or understanding of it. And that's why we continue to use souring agents so widely. Right. Um, preser- are, what about preserved lemons? Are they? So they're very common in North Africa, not mm-hmm. in the Levant right. and Egypt. Okay. Uh, and they're basically, I mean, again, like most things that are preserved or fermented, it starts out of necessity. You have mm. this bounty and lemons don't produce, you know, you go to the supermarket now and you find lemons year round, but lemons are a seasonal fruit. And so in Morocco, they would have a lot of them, a very specific kind uh, called baladi lemons, and they would uh, preserve them so that they would have them throughout the year. And salt is a great preserver. What happens when you preserve it is it amplifies and concentrates the flavors and you actually end up using the skin, the rind, not the flesh on the inside. Mm-hmm. And it adds a very sharp burst of flavor that is entirely different to what fresh squeezed lemon would add. So it's not like you can add, oh, it says here one teaspoon of preserved lemon rind. Let me add like three tablespoons of lemon juice. It doesn't work. It's two totally different flavors. Right. And what's it, so beautiful what's, about it is you can add it to any dish or salad and you immediately give it some sort of a different identification. Mm, you know, it absolutely. becomes a different a different dish and it and you make a batch of a jar, a big jar of them, and they keep virtually forever. Not forever, basically. <laughs> so you know what I do? I actually take out the rind once they've preserved for a long enough time, and I grind it, and I put it in ice cube trays in the freezer. 
And so whenever Smart. I need to use it, I'll just pop one out and use it. Oh, I put it in well. pasta sauces and pestos. And there you go. I don't have to chop last minute, you know, last minute. And then, <laughs> oh, I'll add some preserved lemon. Then you got to, you know, fish one out and got to, you know, exactly. rinse it off and get the rind chopped up. That's a great idea. Thank you. You've just given me a new, <laughs> a new project, a new idea. Um, something that, oh, the use of, I was surprised, actually, the use of peanut butter in oh, the yeah. Sudanese peanut mm-hmm. butter and eggplant. Um, mm-hmm. There's even a tomato and cucumber right. peanut butter salad. That surprised me. So it surprised a lot of people, but if you know how regional cuisine is, it actually makes a lot of sense. Peanuts grow abundantly in Sudan. In fact, in Arabic, peanuts are called food Sudani, which means Sudanese beans. And so it's not surprising that the paste they would use in their dishes is not tahini, but it's peanut butter, because that's what they have. You see that they're using, you know, very similar to the rest of the Arab world. They're mashing their eggplants. And it's, you know, you give the same set of ingredients to people across the world. It's not too far-fetched that they would come up with similar ideas. But then each adapts it to what they have access to and to what they've learned. And so it's... At least to me, when I found that out, I wasn't completely shocked that they're using it because, well, of course, it makes sense. I mean, it's what you have. You have peanut butter. Why would you go and try to source tahini when you have something that is essentially the same? But I mean, in my opinion, I'm a huge peanut butter fan. Tastes sweeter and probably better than your average jar of tahini does. And those are, you know, I love those recipes. The first time I ate the cucumber and tomato one with peanut butter, though, I was a little taken aback (laughs) because looking at it, I'm expecting to taste it and taste the usual tahina salad I'm used to. And I take a bite and I think, oh my God, what is this? And it's peanut butter. (laughs) Well, and so, so often, I mean, before uh, tahina was, was really um, widely available in in Mm -hmm. supermarkets, people would substitute a little bit of peanut butter for it. Um, And not just not quite the same. It doesn't. It's much know. sweeter and much. Yeah. Not, you know, tahini has. Uh, I don't know if earthy is the right way to describe it, but it's a bit more bitter. But it's a much. It's a very pleasant bitterness. Yeah. Um, of course, many of us still just say tahini because that's <laughs> what we know. But I'm, it's lovely to find out the. Um, you know the, the pronunciations from you. Some of the dishes I will never remember the the actual names and pronunciations, but I'll just I mean, call you hard. up. And, right? yeah. But speaking of of Tahina, you have a wonderful um, chapter practically all on that. Was it the nuts chapter or no? It's a Tahina chapter. In oh, it's a Tahina chapter, right? No wonder there's you know, um, a cheesecake and a. Um, What was the other one? Um, There's a salad. um, Oh, a toffee pudding, a tahina toffee pudding. Oh, Mm -hmm. my God. That one. (laughs) Keep me away from that. Because if needed more excuses to keep eating sweets, right? Yes. And just keep you coming back for more because they're savory and sweet. And And as far as nuts, of course, walnuts, there's, you know, walnuts play large in the cuisine, Um, as well as pistachios, not surprising. Anything, anything else that... In terms of nuts and seeds? Yeah. That you would... Pine nuts are huge. And pine nuts, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But also pine nuts, people tend to be very particular about the pine nuts that they buy and use. They're different to the ones you would get in a supermarket here. It's a different variety, actually, or species. There's the Asian slash Chinese one, and then right. there's 
the European Spanish one, which tends yeah. to be, it doesn't have any bitterness. It's smoother. It's thinner. It's longer. It's also much more expensive and much harder. Yes. And, and the first time I noticed the difference, of course, I, I ended up with a, a small bottle of the Chinese version, or the, you know, the <laughs> Eastern ones. And I was, I was so surprised. I mean, you can usually tell upon looking because they're a little shorter and fatter. Exactly. And, they have like yeah. a little ring at the top. And yeah, yeah. A little bit. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, it's so many, so many surprising to me. Um, and I, I would imagine to a lot of, um, of cooks or some of the, the recipes using some of these different ingredients that just are so beautiful and so and you know there's this aha moment like oh of course why not you know <laughs> um, substitute one thing for another uh, what which recipes and I and I well I give you a spoiler and tell you I did a show several years back and <clears throat> we're talking about you mentioned. Um, appropriation of different mm. people saying, no, no, that's that's not an Arab cuisine. That I mean, an Arab recipe that, you know, that originated with us. What recipes in particular might there be some competition over for claiming they're not, I don't want to say authentic because that's not, um, if I make it, it's my authentic recipe. Okay, so, <laughs> but <laughs> so claiming the roots, the origins. Look, it's a very complicated or a very it's a much deeper discussion than that because when you say authentic right what do you mean if by authentic you mean something that is void of external influence then none of those things exist because even if right now i can go back and trace a lot of these dishes to the medieval arabic world we also know a lot of the ingredients that they're using might not have been native to those regions or were brought by travel and trade Mm -hmm. and colonization so if you're going to say authentic in that sense of the word, then there is no such thing as authentic. But when you talk about appropriation, I, I always like to make the distinction between diffusion and appropriation. So diffusion is the natural spread of ideas that happens throughout human civilization and throughout right. time. You know, you're traveling, you're buying ingredients from one place, bringing it to another, planting a crop here, taking a crop there. These things will inevitably happen. Appropriation is when there is a dish that has its origins, forget how far back those origins go, but for all intents and purposes in today's world, it has its origins in one national cuisine or another, and you take it and you cook it and you willfully deny and ignore those origins. And that's where the issues become contentious. Because for example, let's take hummus. Lebanese will say Lebanese hummus and Palestinians will say Palestinian and Jordanians will say Jordanians. And And you don't find any of us fighting over who owns it or who created it or where it came from. It's, you know, it's part of all our culinary repertoires. And up until, uh, you know, just a few decades ago, we were all part of a single geographic continuum stretching back to the start of civilization. But then you come into Israeli cuisine and you have Israeli hummus and suddenly that is a big deal. And it's not because Arabs or Palestinians don't want Israelis to enjoy it. It's because it is being done in a way that willfully denies the contribution of Arab and Palestinian cultures to that dish. So Israel is a new state. Israel's occupying another people. And yet they go abroad in the 80s in the West and start marketing hummus as Israeli, popularizing it without any mention to the indigenous Palestinian population from where they learned it or to the reality on the ground of life as it is there. So you start to see food is a proxy for bigger issues. It's not Mm -hmm. just about the root of the dish itself and who made it. It's about, well, what are you 
denying or who are you shortchanging by doing what you do? And I obviously gave the Israeli example because I'm Palestinian and it's what I can speak to. But there's, I'm sure, plenty of examples, maybe not as extreme in terms of one people occupying another, but you might have people here who will cook a dish that is, let's say, Vietnamese or Thai, completely butcher how it's done, not give any mention to the origins, and then, you know, build a million-dollar blog off of that kind of recipe. So then and you call, start... And again, call it by the same name. That, exactly. Yes, yeah. you're calling it, like, whatever. Let's say you're calling it pho, but it's not really pho, and you're not talking about it being Vietnamese or about Vietnamese people's history or the role the U.S. played and, you know, the, the tragic history there. And then your blog is making a killing off of it and, you know, reaping success and rewards, and, you know, Vietnamese people are left to the sideline. And again, this is just a very broad overgeneralization. I don't have specific examples, but I'm just trying to show how it's often the issue is not about the food itself and who has a right to cook it. It's more about the responsibility you have for sharing the full narrative of it. Yeah, yeah. No, give credit where credit give. Exactly. Yeah, give credit where credits too. I mean, that has been a, a huge issue. Um, you know, in in uh, the the introduction of so much, so many of the American foods from the slave trade. I mean, and that's, yes. that's something that is continuing to go on. I did the show that I did on, uh, on some of the, uh, oh, not on one specific dish. And that was years, I guess it must've been about eight years ago. So when, when all the, the homeless wars, oh, yes. you know, yeah. arose and that was, that was a, that was a, not an easy show to do. And it was, <laughs> yeah, very contentious. And, um, I think it's becoming easier today, though, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, information is more widely available. People are, it's, there's still a lot of work to be done, but you're starting to see some of the people who've been marginalized throughout history are given a bit more of a platform to speak. And that's, you know, one of the things that's shifting the narrative a little bit in the right direction. Well, I think that this book is, is beautiful. I think it's so important in so many ways. As you say, it's they are recipes and and just cultural um, specialness to it that is worth preserving. And and if it can be preserved through food, then you know, then that's the, what what better way to tell those stories and and right. and uh, present it. In fact, you even wrote when you were referencing the rich and complicated culinary past of the of the Arab region, uh, not to mention just the difficult past period, um, <laughs> you, you wrote, cuisine holds memory and history. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks so beautifully because uh, we talk a lot about food memory and taste memories. And and you think about it, it goes so much deeper than that often. And, and this book really, you know, when you want to feel at home, what mm-hmm. what do you do mostly is that you cook a dish that that right. comes from your home and that's it. So I I'm, I applaud you on writing and being very um, I guess you could say just very fair. I have to say nothing else about where these roots are. Who's where the whose roots are they? Where they are mm-hmm. and trying to and give giving credit and um, and trying to separate out which. You know, which have been around for a long time to one right. people and not not an easy thing to do. No, but it's also I think there is this conception of these things are mutually exclusive, right? If yeah. 
you can only belong to one thing or another. And what I wanted to show with this book is that doesn't have to be the case, right? You know, food can still be very important to your national identity. You can still have Italian cuisine and Palestinian cuisine and have that be a marker of your identity while still understanding how portions of those dishes and many of the dishes you eat today do not are not native to your land or have taken very convoluted ways to get into your uh, you know culinary set of recipes and mm-hmm. your culture and mm-hmm. those things don't have to cancel each other out that's right i mean it gets it's and it's getting ever more so <laughs> the, our history is just so now in the world as i said the world's become a small place and the history and is so interconnected food wise it's just mm. it's you know it's interesting. I think it's I think it's a very exciting time to be I think so too, but it's also yeah. a scary time, Linda, because things are moving so quickly. Yes, they are. And everything yeah. is done so virtually that there is plenty of room for things to be lost. You know, when people come 100 years from now and they want to look back at what things were like today, you know, do you even think Instagram will still be around or are they going to be sifting through billions of posts to find it? Unlikely, but that's why I think books are still yeah. so important yeah. and why oh, we that, need to I use was them. Going to say the same thing because that's <laughs> they will they will hopefully you know exist and someone will find them or they there will be record of them. But you'd hope yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, don't even get me started on that. What are letters and <laughs> photos and? <laughs> oh, I know yeah. I miss those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> felt more tangible, more real. And... That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, congratulations on this new book because, as I say, it's, it is you, it is beautiful and and the recipes in are as interesting to read. The head notes are just are tell stories of of each of the dish and the ingredients and and I I really. Um, I think that's an, an important work that you did. And Thank I look you. forward to more coming out of it. So I'm so glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> I am, I am. And as well as my as well as the Palestinian table that was, you know, I, and I see the difference. That's why I said this was um, you know, quite a work to put one out right after another one, you know, to you know, two in a row. But um I see how the Arabesque table has expanded and yet honed in. On, right. on trying to delineate some of those um, ingredient origins. It's really very good. I'm glad, yeah, I mean, my concern was people wouldn't get what this book was about, but you seem to have picked it up perfectly, so that's mm-hmm. reassuring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your time and, and going into detail and, and, and uh, sharing with us what it's all about. And to my listeners, thank you for listening. Uh, this has been another Taste of the Past. And I would also like to thank our sponsor, Gustiamo. And of course, you're listening to heritageradionetwork.org. And you might enjoy listening to many of the other shows that are on the network. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org. And you can help us stay on the airwaves. And they're not airwaves, the the cyber waves. <laughs> if you just, we are a listener-sponsored radio network. So if you just click the beating heart, in the upper right-hand corner of heritageradionetwork.org. You give us a little love. It helps. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.